0: Hello and welcome back to the ILO's Future of Work podcast. I'm Rosalind Yard. Today we're focusing on a workplace issue that has mushroomed in the last few years, mental health. Now work can be a positive factor in our mental health. It can provide a stable income, structured routines, positive relationships, and a sense of purpose, achievement and self-esteem. However, work can also pose a risk to mental health from precarious employment, discrimination, and poor working environments, for instance. According to a 2022 report by the ILO and the World Health Organization, an estimated 12 billion workdays are lost annually due to depression and anxiety, costing the global economy one trillion US dollars, mainly from lost productivity. The problems seem immense. However, our guest today, Emily Rosado Solomon, believes that they can be tackled. As Assistant Professor of Management at Babson College, a business school in Massachusetts, United States, she was one of a team of academics that researched workplace well-being and how to reduce mental health risks for staff. Emily, welcome.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Firstly, can you give us a feel of the scale and impact? of the problem?
1: Sure, so Mental illness, by which I'm talking about chronic conditions such as major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder, bipolar disorder, those sorts of things. Um, The common statistic that we talk about is about one in five employees will have those in their lifetime. So, what that means is that any company with more than five people statistically is likely to have someone with a chronic mental health condition. But the impact of poor mental health that work is actually much bigger than that. So according to a 2021 survey of American workers, 84% of those surveyed experienced at least one one symptom of mental health challenges, such as burnout or stress. Um, So that means that really this is ubiquitous, and at some point, all workers are feeling, almost all workers are feeling some sort of a mental health challenge. And the impact is felt even more strongly in middle and low income countries where there is still a very high prevalence of mental health challenges, but significantly less access to treatment um, and medical support for those.
0: Well, those are huge numbers, 84% of those surveyed. I mean, I think that people are probably not even aware of the scale of of this problem. I imagine that's why you decided to conduct this research.
1: So that's part of it. Um, And those numbers have certainly increased during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But my interest in this topic actually goes back even before COVID-19. So both of my parents work in the mental health field. And so I know that mental health challenges are ubiquitous from growing up with them. And I was really struck when I started studying organizations that management scholars weren't necessarily conducting research um, that I felt corresponded to the ubiquity of mental health challenges.
0: Now, that's, that's strange that they're not conducting, you know, this research hasn't been done um, so far. Why, why do you think that is?
1: well what we see in our review so my colleagues and I reviewed 556 studies on mental health and mental illness and work so there is quite a bit of research out there um, but it's really not integrated very well and so there's some done by psychologists there's some done by people who study occupational health um, there's a bit done by management scholars but nobody had really looked at the totality of that research um, and when we did we found quite 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 a bit, but it's sort of hidden in those disciplinary silos. And were there
0: any findings that really surprised you and your team?
1: Yeah, so when I started thinking about mental health and particularly mental illness, so those chronic conditions and how that impacts work um, and how work can support people with mental illness, I took sort of the same perspective that I think we see most researchers taking, which is I was interested or thinking about the individual who struggled. And what we see in our findings when we look at the totality of these hundreds of studies is I was really surprised by the sort of disproportionate role that the organization can play in either causing or exacerbating people's mental health challenges. Um, And really what we think of as sort of mundane organizational practices that actually have a really big impact on employees' mental health. So so does that mean that it's
0: almost like a compartmentalization in in terms of People know we know that you know many people suffer from mental health issues and you, you told us the, the, the figures. Um, but people don't necessarily associate it with the environment in which they're, they're, they're working. It's this the reason why perhaps employers haven't really seen it in a, in a way that um, ends up meaning that they are looking for solutions.
1: Correct. And so, what we see a lot is when organizations want to support um, employees with mental health challenges, we see them taking these individualized approaches. So, perhaps the individual needs counseling through an employee assistance program, or the individual needs to engage with a mental health support app on their smartphone. Um, But all of these are sort of on the employee to take care of their. Of their own mental health as though it is somehow an individual problem only. And we don't really see as much of an organizational focus on what the organization might be doing to perpetuate um, or to exacerbate these mental health challenges. But also, the flip side of that is the power that the organization has through potentially systematic or proactive change to really improve people's mental health um, in a large scale and meaningful way. So is this, this is what you mean
0: by, you know, organisational culture. Um, I, I know, for example, um, you know, there's the phenomenon of uh, presenteeism. I think that's the correct way of pronouncing it. Yeah. There's this pressure on people just to be present and sometimes pressure on them to actually work over their hours. Is that what we mean by culture?
1: Um, that's definitely part of it. So culture is really just the norms and the taken for granted values in an organization. And so when we talk about organizational culture, what we could be talking about is an organization that has a cooperative culture where people are encouraged to support each other and help each other versus another organization in the same industry or the same size might have a competitive culture where people are really incentivized to only focus on themselves. And so part of what we find, as you mentioned, is sort of this overwork that leads to presenteeism. Um, But also we find that toxic cultures, so cultures in which bullying or disrespect is tolerated or people who engage in those sort of behaviours are rewarded and promoted throughout the organisation, that that is disproportionately harmful to employees' mental health.
0: Now, one of your main findings and kind of linked to that was that um, simple fixes like reducing workloads could take some of the pressure off employees. I mean, it sounds to me that that's kind of common sense. Um, So why is it that this seems not to be done? Is it that you know employers don't even recognize their own culture i mean that that you know the starting point i suppose is self awareness and maybe um is it that um employers or organizations don't even understand what kind of culture that they have created in their organization
1: i think that's definitely part of it um and it, certainly when we say it in that way it does seem like common sense and i think anybody sitting in their car, maybe listening to a podcast or sitting certainly in a business school classroom when I see with my students, it sounds like common sense not to overwork your employees or they might get burned out. But the reality of organizational life is that it's often very hard to fix these problems in a straightforward way. Um, So if we say see an employee who maybe is chronically overworked, certainly we can and perhaps should reassign their tasks um, or some of their tasks to a different employee. But if all we do is pass around the overwork between team members, then that doesn't really solve the problem. It just sort of rotates the burden. And so in order to solve this problem, we really need organizations to engage in systematic change. So fundamentally rethink the way their jobs are designed, perhaps um, potentially hire more employees. And that takes time, that takes resources. And not all organizations recognize, the importance of this. They think of it as sort of a mundane HR function or something that human resources is in charge of as a procedural issue, um, but they don't necessarily think about the link or realize the link to mental health. And so they might choose to spend their limited time or their limited resources on other things like product development, like expanding to new markets. Um, and so certainly, while it sounds like an easy fix, I think the complicated pressures of organizational life and particularly on management managers, um, this just sort of slips through the cracks.
0: So so can you give us some some examples? You know, I mean, one, I mean, you mentioned already, you know, workload, um, but can you give me some examples of the kind of, you know, things that cause stresses on employees, but also maybe explain, you know, some examples of job design as well?
1: Sure, definitely. So um, another thing that we find is particularly important is flexibility in job design. So job design is just how tasks are grouped into jobs within organizations um, and how people in different jobs interact or don't interact with one another to perform their work. Um, So in terms of the way jobs are designed, flexibility is key um, because one of the things we find is that work-life conflict. So when your work responsibilities interfere with your non-work responsibilities and you sort of consistently can't balance the two, that that becomes incredibly problematic. So where possible, flexibility, flexible work arrangements is great. um, The other thing that that enables is for people who maybe would benefit from therapy or would benefit from some other sort of medical support, that if they have a flexible work arrangement, they can take an hour out in the middle of the work day and go see a therapist or go seek medical treatment without having to tell the employers why they're doing that um, or without, you know, having to sort of balance or lie to employers um, to keep a secret. And so flexibility is helpful. Um, Other things that are helpful are solving what we call role ambiguity, which is where employer or employees rather aren't really sure what their job entails, or they're not clear if something is their responsibility. And that sort of uncertainty is really problematic for mental health. And so even just clarifying to employees what their job is, making sure that when we're evaluating their performance, we're really evaluating them based on what we've agreed their tasks and their responsibilities are. Um, So when we talk about sort of fixes around job design those are the sort of things that we're looking at isn't a
0: problem though that um, often employees don't even want to admit that they feel overwhelmed with their with their work because they think that that's they're going to be judged by their employer that they'll have a poor performance evaluation so having that enabling culture is actually quite tricky isn't it
1: It is really tricky. And there are a couple ways to go about um, addressing that. So one of them is that organizations and managers can work to normalize people not feeling okay. So oftentimes in the midst of the COVID pandemic, at least in the States, we would hear people throw around this phrase, it's okay to not be okay. Um, And it might sound a little cliche, but it's really important for managers and for organizations to share that message. So what that might look like is If a manager feels comfortable sharing their own mental health struggles, certainly that can be a powerful way to destigmatize mental health challenges. But it could also be as simple as a manager saying, hey, I'm having a really hard day today, and sort of modeling for employees that that's okay, that the manager understands that people have hard days, um, and being more broadly supportive can actually trickle down so that employees do feel more comfortable saying, hey, I'm struggling. And, you know, certainly there is a societal stigma about mental health and mental illness. So an employee might not want to come out and disclose, hi, I have major depressive disorder, but they might then feel comfortable saying to their manager, you know, I'm struggling. I'm having a really rough time. Can I work from home today? And so be able to seek that sort of support um, without necessarily risking the backlash from the stigma of naming their mental illness.
0: Yeah, it sounds like, with you know, with, when we talk about management styles here, that have a, you know, it has to be a management style with a more human face, you know, not seeing workers as just part of a production <laughs> line, um, so, yeah. so to speak.
1: And I think that part of it also goes back to really who managers are. So in most organizations, people are promoted to managers because they're good at whatever their job is. So they're a great engineer or they're a great salesperson, and then they're promoted to the manager of engineers. But leading people and recognizing when they need support and what type of support they need is actually a very different skill set than being an engineer or a salesperson. And so I think it's really incumbent on organizations to provide that sort of management managerial training.
0: Right, okay. Um, so but when we're talking about the workplace, um of course employers can't take away all the stresses. I mean there are jobs where employees witness trauma. I mean it could be in a you know uh, in, in a hospital, they could be firefighters, they could be in the police service. Um surely, you know, maybe we're expecting too much on employers to do that. Um uh, you know in in those kind of settings.
1: So I think that's a really great point. And of course, there's traumatic work organizations like those you mentioned, and there's just inherent stress in less, obviously, traumatic work organizations. And there is really good research on the police force and on the military about things that can at least be done to mitigate some of this challenge. So for instance, um, in both military settings and police settings, there's been research to show a benefit of resilience training before um, employers. Employees encounter what is sort of inevitable trauma in their jobs. Um, in the police force, there's quick access to psychologists or therapists to help them process trauma. And so those types of interventions, while we still have more research that needs to be done on the best way to implement them, um, that research really does show promise for those types of preliminary or preventative interventions that workplaces can do um, that can really mitigate some of the inevitable damage um, and could potentially be brought into less inherently traumatic work. Um, But also there's research to show that, for instance, there's a great study on humanitarian aid workers, and certainly they experienced vicarious trauma, they witnessed unimaginable loss um, and illness and death, but also the things that we're talking about more broadly, like not letting people who are verbally abusive or incompetent become supervisors, that also influence their mental health. And so I think that there are a lot of ways that organizations can move the needle, even if they can't solve all of employees' challenges.
0: Great. And I know that in the study, you outlined four steps that employers can take um, to reduce kind of mental stresses on their employees. I mean, in the short time that we have left, maybe you could just outline those four steps?
1: Sure. And we've talked about sort of the reasoning behind some of them. So the first is clarifying and revising job descriptions. So make sure employees know what's expected of them, make sure that what's expected of them is sort of reasonable in the long term, even if there are short term fluctuations in workload. Um, The second is to proactively train staff on the positive behaviors expected of them. So things like a zero tolerance policy on bullying or disrespect and making sure that managers know not to hire people who might um, show these sort of negative interpersonal behaviors even if they're really great performers. So just like hiring managers have a set of technical requirements um, for who they hire, have a set of interpersonal requirements too to make sure that any new employees are supporting a positive organizational culture. Um, The third suggestion we have in this article is helping employees build resilience, which we just talked about sort of in terms of taking what we know from extreme occupations like police and military and bringing that maybe into more general workplaces. Um, and then the fourth is don't assume that employees will speak up. So the research shows that about two-thirds of employees with a mental health challenge will say something to somebody at work. Um, but that means one-third of employees at least won't say something, or more than that, won't say something to their manager. And so I think that's why it's incumbent for organization, on organizations To assume that there are these pervasive mental health challenges with their employees and take whatever proactive steps they can to improve the workplace, to reduce psychological hazards, um, to help employees who they may not know have uh, mental health challenges.
0: Are they um, kind of proactive in trying to preemptively fix problems or do you find that there's some kind of reluctance here to follow your, your four steps?
1: Yeah, so I think that employers certainly try to be proactive. but perhaps they miss the mark a little. So as I mentioned, there's a lot of money invested, for instance, into employee assistance programs to provide sort of short-term therapy to individual employees who need it. Um, but that doesn't address the overwhelming systematic influences. And with employees, um, in terms of their proactivity, there is the real risk of stigma. And so what we see is a lot of employees, especially those with diagnosed mental illness, um, might not want to come forward and pro- proactively talk about that with their manager for fear of stigma. um, And that is a very real risk. But what we do see is employees starting to partially disclose. So saying, hey, I'm struggling um, instead of saying, hi, my major depressive disorder is acting up. Um, And so sort of being strategic about how they can seek support without risking exposure to stigma.
0: Yeah, certainly. I think that, um, you know, in recent years, we've seen, you know, well-known personalities who are much more willing to talk about their mental health um, struggles, which is becoming, it seems to me, kind of more kind of normalised, if that's, if that's the correct um, word. And hopefully there is some kind of hope <laughs> that um, mental health is something that can be out in the open in the workplace and can be um, addressed. Are, do you, are, are you hopeful that that's the case?
1: Um, I am really hopeful. So I mentioned before that I was really surprised in conducting this review about the disproportionate impact of the organizational practices and culture on employees' mental health. And I think that the flip side of that is once we know what causes it, employers actually have an ability to fix some of these things. As you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, um, work can really be a force for good in employees' mental health, and it can provide dignity, it can provide meaning, it can provide a livelihood. And so I think that if organizations get this right, and as the research moves toward a broader and more open conversation about this, as employees are increasingly willing to speak up, as you mentioned, certainly the stigma reduction from well-known celebrities, we also see systematically that younger um, employees are more willing to speak up about their mental health in really explicit ways, Um, I do think that this conversation can move organizations in general from exacerbating the problems to potentially being an important part of the solution.
0: Excellent. So on on that positive note, let's, let's wrap up there. Thank you so much, Emily, for discussing this really, really important issue with us. And so thank you listeners for listening to the Future of Work podcast and I'll see you next time. Goodbye.